Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. So Smart Podcast, episode 88. According to the Pew Research Center, Republicans and Democrats in the United States are more divided along ideological lines than at any point in the last two decades. So if you're a freshman in college or younger, you've never lived in a more politically divided world than today. And any way you look at it, This is getting worse. The numbers seem to suggest that as a whole, the country is dividing itself into two mental tribes, two groups of people who think differently about what is true, what is right and wrong, and what ought to be legal and illegal. And for a while after the Civil War, Americans had a lot more overlap in their beliefs. Even if you self-identified as a Republican, you tended to hold a lot of liberal values and vice versa. It was once a lot messier, blurrier, more diverse. But the trend since the 1970s has been a steady clustering into two homogenized camps of people. In 1994, the graph showed that the median left and the median right positions were almost side by side. By 2014, those medians had moved so far away from one another that the clustering of American ideologies started to look like a cell dividing with that skinny strip in the middle holding an ever smaller group of moderates. Today, 92% of Republicans are to the right of the median Democrat and 94% of Democrats are to the left of the median Republican. And that means the fringes are fringier than ever. More people now live in what Pew calls ideological silos, also sometimes known as filter bubbles, in which They only spend time with people and media outlets that agree with their views. Pew says about 20% or so of the public is so extremely hardcore liberal and so insanely staunchly conservative that they tell Pew they would never, ever, 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 ever vote for anyone or support any idea from the other side. Pew's research found that people in those groups wouldn't even welcome someone from the other side into their families and, frankly, They don't want to live near them either. 27% of Democrats said they see the Republican Party as a threat to the nation's well-being. 
and 36% of Republicans said the same thing of Democrats. And among professional politicians, if you can believe this, this polarization trend is even more extreme. When Pew researched voting patterns in Congress, they found that the United States was not just more divided than it was in the 1960s, it's more divided than it has been since the Civil War. According to Pew, and this is a quote, this translates into a growing number of Republicans and Democrats who are on completely opposite sides of the ideological spectrum, making it harder to find common ground in policy debates. So why is this happening, and what can we do about it? Well, there are some social scientists who believe they may have answers to both of those questions. My name is Rob Willer, and I'm a professor of sociology, psychology, and organizational behavior at Stanford University. Willer wants to figure out how to bridge this political divide. And to do so, he is studying morality. And that might seem surprising to some people because morality often seems like some sort of philosophical opinion-based concept. But we've actually made a lot of progress when it comes to understanding human morality from a scientific perspective. It does feel like traditionally we would have thought of morality as the purview of cultural spaces in society like religion and theology. I know I was on a plane recently talking to an evangelical Christian who, when, when I told him that I studied morality, he was just sort of like slack-jawed, like, what do you, you know, but you said that you were a professor. Why, why is that an acceptable area for you to study? That's not the purview of science. As Willer explains, social scientists see morality as a natural phenomenon and try to avoid making prescriptive judgments about what is right and what is wrong when observing what different populations of humans have to say about such ideas. Instead, we're more oriented towards description and explanation. We're interested in trying to describe what it is that different human societies deign to be right and wrong and why it is that they do, and, and then what happens as a consequence. Willer says that every human culture, no matter how big or how small, be it an entire nation or a group of people playing a first-person shooter online, it has a unique take on what is right and what is wrong. Morality is a universal feature of human psychology, and thus, scientists presume, it serves a vital adaptive function. I think the most obvious function of morality or functions of morality are to promote the collective welfare, to link people together into cohesive communities, to protect people from one another, and to protect societies from some sort of outside threats, whatever those might be. And so in a way, morality is a sort of system of rules that sits on top of our visceral personal urges and regulates them. Now, the problem here is that these rules aren't the same for every person. And Across all human cultures, it seems to be true that the foundations for our moral beliefs are the result of adaptive strategies that manifest into two broad ways of interacting with the natural world. And you can kind of think of this as a spectrum of skittishness. For instance, 
You've probably met cats that were super affectionate and seemed to love strangers, but you've also met cats that ran away the second they saw you. Now, from an evolutionary standpoint, with natural selection applying pressure to what is and is not a good personality trait, being absolutely fearless, it's not a great way to go frolicking through the wild. Fear keeps you away from bad things. And before we were civilized and had vending machines and Snapchat, just about everything was a potential source of horrifying death. Being a scaredy cat who jumps at false positives is more or less a great way to stay not dead. But the downside is that you might not take the risks necessary to find new sources of food or new territories to explore or new relationships that might lead to helpful friends or lifelong loves. Neither strategy is best in all situations. So human beings have developed in almost every single culture a push-pull antagonism between novelty-seeking and novelty avoidance, liberalism and conservatism. Morality gets a lot weirder, though, when these biological underpinnings get shaped by your family and your culture, and they become more nuanced. The psychologist Jonathan Haidt and his colleagues have identified adult morality sliders in the United States, a combination of five categories that are each set a bit differently in each person. And those categories are care versus harm, fairness versus cheating, liberty versus oppression, loyalty versus traitors and traitorism, authority versus rebellion, and sanctity versus degradation. And those seem to be the moral foundations of the way we perceive right and wrong. In fact, the whole theory is called moral foundations theory. And liberals in the United States, they tend to care way, way, way more about harm and fairness than do conservatives and conservatives care way, way, way more about liberty, loyalty, authority, and sanctity. And however your sliders are set, that's your moral reality. That's what Haidt calls a moral matrix, just like the movie The Matrix. And inside of it, you are blind to the moral reality of other people. It's almost impossible to imagine what it would be like to think like someone who has a different moral framework. And this, according to Willer, leads to one of the problems driving our political divide, maybe the problem, something he calls the moral empathy gap. Yeah, so we would say the reason that it's so hard to get out of your head and move beyond your own moral conviction, convictions is because of something that we call the moral empathy gap, or which I should say previous researchers like Pete Ditto have called the moral empathy gap. And this is the inability to comprehend and fluently think through moral worldviews that are different from your own. So as John Haidt likes to say, morality has a tendency to both bind people together and also blind them to the perspectives of one another. It's a very groupy faculty, our moral faculty. Uh, and, you know, it's, it makes sense, right? Mor morals, moral values are our most deeply held beliefs. And it's extremely hard for us to empathize with people who disagree with us on them. And in some cases, it's even hard for us to acknowledge the humanity of someone who would think something else, you know, is right and wrong from what we think. You probably think to some degree that you chose your moral framework, that you contemplated what is right, what is wrong, and you made a conscious decision to believe one way or the other. But the, the research suggests that mm, 
not as much as you think, maybe not at all, that you were probably born genetically predisposed to be a little more novelty seeking or a little less novelty seeking. And that was further shaped by your family, your friends, your peers, your culture. And now you are sort of locked into one framework or the other. You can actually test this to see if this is true at yourmorals.org. That's where Jonathan Haidt is continuing his research. And you can answer questions that on the surface don't seem to to demonstrate very much, but they demonstrate a whole lot. Things like, would you throw a rotten tomato at a political leader that you dislike? And if you would, how much money would it take for you to do it? Like uh, nothing or $100,000 or more? Would you curse your parents to their face, but you could apologize one year later? Would you sign a piece of paper that said you sell your soul after your death to whoever has this piece of paper? And if you would do that, how much money would it take? Would you give up all food other than bread and water and vitamins for six months? Would you, if your family dog was hit by a car, be willing to eat that dog? Would you wear the sweater that was worn by a child molester? Would you accept a blood transfusion from a serial killer? Would you clean a toilet, a very dirty gas station toilet, with an American flag? Would you stick a pin into the palm of a child you don't know? Would you wear a sign on your back that said, I am an idiot for six months? See, these questions seem ridiculous on the surface, but through thousands and thousands and thousands of surveys, the research has shown that the way people answer these questions determine how their sliders are set, and how their sliders are set reliably determine what kind of moral framework both binds you to other people and blinds you to others. The framework within which you can't see out of and can't even imagine thinking otherwise. The framework that tells you what kind of person is an idiot. Yeah, moral views are so foundational to our thinking about the way society ought to be, to our understandings of one another's behaviors, to our self-understandings, our perceptions of how we ought to conduct ourselves, how we ought to live our lives, uh, that it can be very hard to break out of this. They're just absolutely fundamental. But, and this is, I think, a point well made by moral foundations theory, societies, you know, diverge a great deal in terms of the specifics of what they color to be, uh, you know, moral or not. And so, you know, while there may be these sort of a relatively tractable list of core moral concerns, what we are calling these five moral foundations, that's actually a pretty broad palette for a given society to paint with. And it can make really, really different paintings uh, with just those five colors, especially as you start to get more specific and shaded with them to overextend this this, uh, metaphor. And so, and then once you're in that painting, it's really hard to understand how the painting could look different. Rob Willer is the guest on this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast because he and his colleague Matthew Feinberg just released a new study that shows a lot of promise when it comes to making sense of why we are so divided and why we are so bad at getting the other side to see things our way. And most of all, why it feels impossible to change their minds, whoever they might be. According to Willer, And Feinberg, it all comes down to escaping that moral framework that blinds us to how other people may see the world. And they've come up with a way that you can argue your position that can pretty reliably shift people who see things otherwise. My name is David McRaney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And after this commercial break, 
we will hear all about that research. If you buy a Casper mattress, they send it right to your house and they offer free delivery and free returns with a 100-night home trial. If you don't love this thing, you can sleep on it for 100 nights and they'll pick it up after all that sleeping and refund you everything. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, not just going into a store and rolling around on it and feeling awkward. They want you to consider that you're going to spend a third of your life on this thing. And what is this thing? Casper had a team of engineers that work directly in-house for thousands of hours. They developed this thing, the Casper mattress. And now they have this springy latex supportive memory foam super mattress. It allows you to have just the right sink, just the right bounce, and it's breathable. It keeps you cool. It regulates your temperature. And since they make this thing themselves, they sell it directly to consumers, which eliminates commission-driven inflated prices. Now, how much does it cost? Well, a mattress like this would cost you about $1,500, but because of all these things I just mentioned, Casper mattresses cost $500 for a twin-sized, $600 for a twin XL, $750 for full, $850 for queen, and $950 for king. They are obsessively engineered mattresses at a shockingly fair price, and Time Magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015, and you get free shipping and returns to the United States and Canada, and it's made in America. Now, there's a special offer for listeners of this show. Here's what you do. You get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash so smart and using the offer code so smart. That's www.casper.com slash so smart. And the offer code is so smart. Terms and conditions apply. Like so many of you, I am always looking for ways to keep learning and to become more aware of the world around me. That's why I started this podcast. And that's why The Great Courses Plus is just the best sponsor ever. They continue to be a perfect resource for the stuff that I am into. And I think it'll be the stuff that you're into as well. Myself and Amanda, that's my wife, we. We have this queue of stuff that we, we have more to watch than we'll ever get to, I think maybe for the rest of our lives, because there's just this huge variety of fascinating courses to choose from, covering everything from scientific discoveries to major historical events, photography, language, psychology, neuroscience, all of it, everything, sociology, anthropology, all the ologies that I love, and new courses are added all the time. They have this... in insane large library of video lectures presented by top award-winning professors, well-made, perfectly vetted, fact-checked. It's the best stuff. I recommend watching The Art of Critical Decision-Making. This is a course that teaches you how to, nope, not make bad decisions anymore. High-stakes decisions, cognitive biases, decision-making traps, framing, reframing, intuition, reason by analogy, normalizing deviance, normal accident theory, practical drift, what do these things mean? You will learn about them all within this course. It explores how indecision can paralyze us within our culture of yes, no, and maybe. 
and it offers great tools to improve your own decision-making processes. And with the Great Courses Plus, you can stream as many different lectures like this as you want anytime, anywhere from your smartphone, tablet, laptop, or TV. Now, I want you to sign up for the Great Courses Plus today because they're giving my listeners a wonderful offer, an entire month of unlimited access to all other lectures for free. The one I just talked about, The Art of Critical Decision-Making, watch the whole thing. Watch the whole thing by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. Start your free month now by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. And now we return to our program. My name is David McCraney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And our guest in this episode is Rob Willer, who, along with his colleague, Matthew Feinberg, just released a new study that explores how to use morality and how to think about other people's morality to create better arguments that are more likely to change people's minds about the things that we usually think are just outside the realm of possibility when it comes to shifting attitudes. Here is that interview. I've been trying to understand... Um, because, you know, we, we are all arguing, we're all bickering, we're all trying to get people to either see things our way or change their mind about the way they see things. And sometimes this is directed at, uh, policies or it's directed at, um, courses of action that we think that should be taken either by our institutions or by people who are in our friends and family. Or sometimes it's just, you know, uh, it could be as simple as saying, no, the new Star Wars movie was awesome. And I think here's why, and you lay it out. And when, yeah. when we try to argue with other people, when we try to make a case for why they are wrong and we are right, you uh, suggest in your study that we do something uh, sort of uh, intuitively that just doesn't work. And that was in, in your, both of your, um, your hypothesis, both hypotheses in your uh, study sort of lay this out. So if you could, we're going to walk our way through your research here. What, what did you hypothesize up front about the way we argue? Sure. Yeah. So uh, uh, one of our intuitions going into this research is that this idea of the moral empathy gap probably presents a, a barrier to political persuasion. So if it's the case, which we know it is the case, that liberals and conservatives tend to hold different moral values and that moral values tend to uh, blind people to one another's perspectives, then this might help us understand why it is that liberals and conservatives tend to be so apparently terrible at persuading one another to, uh, to agree with them and even to acknowledge one another's basic humanity, uh, which you know, seems to be failing this year in particular. Uh, so in a nutshell, we had this idea that liberals and conservatives, when they go to persuade one another on some sort of, moral, uh, some sort of political issue, they tend to make arguments in terms of their own moral values. Uh, in effect, they persuade as though they were looking into a mirror, making arguments that they themselves find persuasive rather than thinking effortfully about, you know, what's the sort of moral argument that's going to be persuasive to this person I'm talking with? You know, should I, what, what are the values of the audience uh, to this, this uh, persuasive appeal? Uh, and of course, this sort of reasoning neglects the fact that liberals and conservatives in the U.S. tend to care about different things. As, as, we, uh, as we mentioned, liberals care a lot about equality, fairness, protecting vulnerable people from harm. Conservatives care a lot about group loyalty, patriotism, 
respect for authority, purity. And uh, one way to think about this is that is to think that the very divided political topography of our country rests atop an equally divided moral topography. And, uh, and when you ask someone to not only agree with you on some political issue that they feel differently from you about, but also to forsake their values for your values, well, that's tough. That usually isn't going to go very far because people's, I mean, people's values define them. For a lot of people, they're willing to fight and die for their values. Um, and they're, they're, these are the beliefs that people have that they are most motivated to protect. And so, um, you know, it's much easier to change somebody's position on the earned income tax credit than it is to change their position on the importance of equality in a free society. So, uh, so that was sort of the, the guiding intuition we had was that, uh, that on the one hand, the way the liberals and conservatives approach moral appeals is to make arguments in terms of their own values, not the values of their audience. And then secondarily, if they didn't do it this way, if they did consider the values of the person they were trying to persuade, that they would be more effective. It's, it's interesting to me that these arguments can be painted as being moral uh, and they can be painted as differently moral, depending on how you want to, to try to persuade people. And um, so um, I'm interested in hearing what you found. And uh, I find all of these great. Um, you, your first thing you wanted to do is to find out if people were in favor of making um, English the national language. I think you were trying to find conservatives and liberals in this. So what did you find in, your fir- in the first round there when you're seeing, uh, you're seeing whether or not people would, would intuitively make arguments for... Uh, making English the national language from a moral standpoint. What did you find there? Yeah, so the first thing that we wanted to investigate is, is it really the case that liberals and conservatives tend to make arguments in terms of their own values rather than the values of the person that they're talking to? So in one study, we offered liberals a cash prize if they could make an argument for gay marriage that conservatives would find persuasive. And uh, what we found was that liberals overwhelmingly made arguments in terms of the liberal moral values of equality and fairness, or these are moral values endorsed more by liberals than they are by conservatives. So we found that liberals wrote things like everyone should have the right to love whoever they choose, and they deserve, they being gay Americans, deserve the same equal rights as other Americans. And overall, 69% of liberals, when we coded the arguments that they constructed, 69% made arguments in terms of a more liberal moral value, and just 9% used a more conservative moral value. And we also studied conservative, in all these studies, we've tried to study it you know, from both directions, and we found conservatives, they weren't much better at this exercise. Uh, they tended to make arguments when we asked them to construct a persuasive appeal for why English should be the official language of the United States, a traditionally conservative policy position. Uh, they tended to make arguments in terms of conservative moral values like patriotism and group loyalty and respect for authority and so on. In fact, 59% of conservatives made arguments using one of those kind of values and just 8% used values related to equality and fairness, values that are endorsed more by liberals, uh, even though it's supposed to be liberals that, that they were targeting for persuasion. So, you know, you can see right away why we'd be in trouble with that kind of a scenario. You know. <laughs> so just before we move forward, what is people who made 
around 10% and our 8, 8% of one and 9% of the other did actually attempt to um, make the other side's argument from their moral perspective. What is the conservative argument for same-sex marriage and what is the liberal argument for uh, making English a national language? So what would work better than these uh, sorts of arguments that people make spontaneously? Uh, we believe that it's a technique that we call moral reframing. And uh, in this technique, what you do is rather than just give your own moral reasons for why you support some political position, uh, you think carefully about how your target audience might come to agree with you on that political position, but from a different moral origin. You know, why it is that, say you're a liberal, why would a conservative with very different moral values from your own, why might they agree with you that same-sex marriage ought to be legal mm -hmm. uh, given their, start, their moral starting place? So in one of our experiments, we asked conservatives and liberals to read essays in support of same-sex marriage that were constructed in terms of either the values of equality and fairness or the values of loyalty and patriotism. So the loyalty and patriotism argument you know, said things like uh, gay Americans are loyal, patriotic Americans. They serve the military. They contribute to our economy. They only want the same rights that other Americans enjoy and America, America and go America. Mm -hmm. So this very patriotic message we found, uh, it didn't really make a difference whether liberals read an equality message or a patriotism message for same-sex marriage. This is a position that liberals are already on board for. But for conservatives, it really, it really mattered. Conservatives supported same-sex marriage more if they had heard this patriotism-based argument uh, for it. And we tested going the other way as well, uh, constructing persuasive appeals on, you know, on issues like uh, making English the official language of the United States and uh, having high levels of military spending in the U.S., classically conservative positions that we packaged in terms of liberal values like equality and fairness. And when we did, we found that liberals supported these positions significantly more than they would have otherwise. Okay. That, that just, I just, I just want to stand up and walk around the room and think for a minute because it's so, it's, yeah, it's, it's so great, it's so great, uh, I'm, I, I, because, um, it what I think what what I like about this from my own perspective is that it, it was difficult for me to think of what would be that argument <laughs> when they're like, um, and uh, but when you as you say later on in the study and we'll get there once it is presented to me I'm like oh yeah that makes total sense that that would that totally would work, um you reframe the arguments in a way that would be more uh, appealing to the other side. I'm just wondering, like, what did you find statistically? What did you find? What was the, what was your success like or lack? Yes. The takeaway was that when we showed liberals and conservatives morally reframed messages, so sort of new messages for political positions, they would not normally support, but that were essentially rewired to appear logically consistent with their moral values, that they tended to support those positions more, whether they were national health insurance in one of our studies or high levels of military spending in another. I mean, we've also studied all sorts of things like uh, environmental reform, taking action on climate change, you know, uh, same-sex marriage, as we mentioned, a variety of issues that when you hear 
a logical argument for why that position that you maybe disagree with is consistent with values that you hold deeply, you're more favorably disposed to it. Now, the effects are not necessarily enormous, and one, one should be very skeptical of massive effect sizes in political persuasion studies. People have thought a lot about their politics, and they're, they're not, you know, ready to, to, to totally flip on most, you know, core political positions. But we, did, we do find really reliable effects, you know, when we go across different issue domains, we tend to find that there is a morally reframed argument there that, that could be made that would be persuasive. Super fascinating. And and I would imagine that um, well, you talk about this in the study, and this is what I really wanted to ask about is that, so uh, it looks like both of your uh, hypotheses uh, Felt they looks like they were both pretty much supported, and uh, I think that's fascinating and amazing. And I think about the social movements that have come through in the past, and I'm wondering, uh, just as a sociologist, what do you think of um, the use of this moral reframing out there in the in the real world? How often is this used? And uh, do you know some like some cases uh, that people would be familiar with in which this sort of argumentation was implemented and it had good, positive real world results? Yeah. OK, so that, yeah. So this is an excellent uh, this is an excellent question that actually my my colleague, Matt Feinberg, and I, we think about a lot because we're also very interested in social movements. And, you know, we think in general that social movements do tend to feature some sort of moral arguments uh, very centrally, because social movements really only emerge where uh, people have a morally principled position that they're essentially like dying to express. Uh, recall that social movements face a free rider problem where they have to convince people that it's worth it to override their individual self-interest to contribute to a cause. So if I'm heading up a social movement, I have to convince you that what you want to do on Saturday afternoon afternoon is not some sort of leisure. Instead, you want to show up for this, this rally, mm. this protest event. Or I need to convince you that you don't want to spend that money on a new television. You want to make a contribution to this important uh, you know, political drive. And game theorists would tell you that that's a fundamentally irrational decision unless a strong preference for the social movement can be cultivated. So why, why do you do it? How do we cultivate that strong preference for whatever this movement's trying to do? And uh, Matt and I think that uh, a deep-seated moral motivation is, is part of the answer. Mm. But it's no coincidence that when we see social movements emerge, they tend to be making moral claims. Why? Because moral, a moral reaction to, uh, to some situation is a deeply motivating thing. It's something that is so motivating, it grips you and leads you to set aside your self-interest and, and do something for, uh, you know, a perceived social good. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I, obviously we're seeing this, you know, Donald Trump's, I, I went to a Trump rally early on in, in the book process, uh, before it was even, before he was even being taken seriously. And I was like, oh, okay. He's just making these, uh, he's, he's doing, he's using these, he was making those arguments. He was making those moral statements of that, of loyalty and unity and, um, a strong, uh, uh, group of people who were patriotic, like he was really, really hammering away at, at the American conservative positions. And, um, I'm wondering, uh, how much of this in the world of politics is in, in our, in modern politics, how much of this, how much of that rhetoric is mindful of what you're talking about and what you're researching and how much of it is just, 
they're just looking into what works and, and, and it's more of a Darwinian thing where they're, they just use what works and throw away what doesn't. Is there, I mean, what I'm trying to say is, is there much, um, is this kind of research being utilized in, you know, uh, behind the scenes of modern political campaigns or is it still something that's sort of locked in academia? Well, I mean, that's an excellent question. And I think that a cynic would say that we moral psychologists and sociologists are only now catching up with uh, stuff that practical ethicists, you know, po political campaign consultants, for example, that, you know, that, that tell politicians what to say for a living have already known for, for decades, mm. uh, that we're just catching up with that common sense. And I think that there's some truth to that. I think that most political consultants would say, yeah, you want to move people to vote for candidate X instead of candidate Y, invoke some sort of moral reason. And that when you look at uh, these sort of, you know, famous failed political campaigns in history, uh, that it often happens when people lose track of the fact that you got to offer people some sort of fire, you know, to push them to the polls, yeah. to push them to phone bank and go door to door. You got to give them some sort of, you know, some sort of heat. It can't just be cold, calculated reason and evidence. Um, you know, this was one of the reasons people say that they voted against Al Gore, that he seemed like coldly rational and robotic. Right. Yeah. <laughs> He didn't have that heat, you know, which he did kind of develop later, which is sort of interesting for his personal trajectory. Yeah. But uh, we've specifically studied, you know, his pet issue of climate change, which uh, we believe is an issue that hasn't always thrived because it's often not couched in moral terms. It's couched in very sort of rationalistic scientific terms. And that's persuasive to some people. But uh, for other people, they really need that heat. And it needs to furthermore agree with their moral values. Yeah. So, what is the strong? What is the strong moral argument? Uh, give. Let's give people some ammunition. What is the? What would you say is the? I mean, I know how to argue climate change to a scientifically literate person, and I pretty much know how to argue it to a liberal, to an American style liberal person. But I don't know the good conservative moral argument for taking climate change seriously. What What would you suggest there? Yeah, well, we ran an experiment on exactly this question a few years ago where we compared the effectiveness of a pretty conventional argument, a pro-environmental argument that, that said we needed to protect the environment uh, for reasons related to, you know, caring for the environment, protecting it from harm. Uh, and these are, this is the intuitive way to argue for it, right? It's called the Environmental Protection Agency for a reason. Uh, so we gave people a message that, said things like, it's essential we take steps now to prevent further destruction from being done to our earth. And in our research, we find that this is pretty much how when people write op-eds in support of environmental protection, this is how they approach it. They make these kinds of arguments. And then we compared it with a very different message that made an argument that we need to protect the environment in order to protect the sanctity and purity of the environment. So in, in this message, we uh, said things like keeping our forests, drinking water, and skies pure mm. is of vital, vital importance, and we should regard the pollution of the places we live in to be disgusting. Uh, reducing pollution can help us preserve what is pure and beautiful about the places we live. And so this is an argument that's really meant to fit with the uh, purity, sanctity, and disgust uh, concerns and reactions of American conservatives. And we found that it was pretty successful, that conservatives who were presented with that purity, sanctity message 
tended to support environmental protection more, and they were even more likely to express concern about climate change, even though this message didn't even mention climate change. That's just like a related environmental issue. Uh, so this is this is one way to approach it. This is a way that we've tested, but I think that there's other approaches uh, that could potentially resonate with American conservatives here, like patriotism. You know, yeah. it, it would not be for, for most most issues that are in the national interest. You can make a patriotism-based argument for them, and if you can, that there's there's no good reason not to if you're trying to be persuasive to a conservative audience. That's fascinating. I remember when I was a kid that 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 the in um, that pollution always came up as the it, that was the message of a pro, the pro environmental um, um, political that was the pro, the the pro environmental message it was all about pollution when I was a kid and was all about um, destroying the environment and saving the earth, but um, using the pollution as as sort of like the doomsday. Uh, scenario and showing, you know, the industrial runoff and showing litter and that sort of thing. And, um, but I do, I clearly remember when the message started to change to things like save the owls. And I remember conservative people in my life being greatly turned off by that message. Cause they're like, what about the, what about the people who make a living off of that uh, job? And, you know, you're, you're, you're choosing the owl over the, the um the blue collar worker and i i can i can almost feel when that message sort of went in one direction and left uh and left a lot of people wondering why they would support it whenever there was a it was clearly leaving their their moral matrix that's interesting yeah well i mean i think it's very interesting to think of our society as sort of this uh or the macro level of our society as typified by these kind of warring political and moral entrepreneurs who are initiating moral and political cultural projects where they try to define their issues as, as the right ones and the issues that they oppose, the positions they oppose as the wrong ones. And they're using hmm. the material available to them like a toolkit to make their case and sell people that this is what you should think of as right and wrong and not what this, you know, what this other, uh, this, mm. this other, other set of elites is telling you is right and wrong. And, you know, this cuts to really the heart of this idea about the functionality of morality. If there's one difference, and this is getting very obtuse and academic, but if there's one difference in the way that psychologists and sociologists approach morality, it would probably have to do with the functionality of morality. So psychologists very often, I find, assume that moral rules serve the greater good and the collective welfare. And I don't think they're wrong. I think a world without moral rules, just about every society I'm aware of would be worse off. But sociologists tend are much more likely to have a critical perspective on moral rules. They're much more likely to uh, say that moral rules reflect who won in a, in a, a, a competition between moral elites. And that, you know, moral rules that surround things like following God's word or you should always remain sexually abstinent or you should not express dissent during times of war. That, you know, a lot of sociologists would say, does that necessarily serve the society's interest? Maybe, maybe not. But what it more clearly serves is are the, uh, the interests of powerful, prestigious actors who have disproportionate control over what people think of as right and wrong. And once you start to think about that as uh, where morality comes from, 
as it comes from, it comes from these elites who are essentially trying to sell morality projects to the public uh, using different techniques and with different factors predicting who wins or loses. Then you're really through the moral matrix looking from outside, you know, Morpheus on your left shoulder. <laughs> Man, that's uh, now that's yeah, that's good stuff. That 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 goes back to the um, that goes back to Bernays and um, and to propaganda and, and the and the and just the first notions of um, of a top down system of, of influence. Uh, do you would you recommend and just just as an aside, uh, this idea of moral entrepreneurs and elites? Do you, would you recommend a um, a good source to to explore that idea, like a good. I mean, yeah, yeah, for that sort of uh, cynical take on uh, morality projects. I mean, the first thing that jumps into my mind is Nietzsche's The Genealogy of Morals, mm-hmm. which has a, a very critical take on the origins of Judeo-Christian ethics in Western civilization. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, let me ask one more question about your work, uh, and that is, uh, toward, toward, the, the end of your, toward the end of your study, you mentioned, um, you, this question came up about, um, it seems... Why don't people? Why don't we spontaneously make these morally reframed arguments? I mean, we've we're around people our entire lives. We are, thanks to social media, even more and more so, are we exposed to the idea that other people think differently or they have a different set of values from us? Yet we still don't spontaneously make morally reframed arguments when we're trying to persuade other people. But you found in your research that people easily could recognize that uh, those arguments would be more effective if they were presented those things as a choice. So if you could uh, sort of go through how you um, did that, how you found out that was true, and then uh, why you think that's true. Yeah, so uh, so I think this is an excellent question of why it is that we don't just spontaneously make morally reframed arguments, like, you know, because our research was very consistent. People do not tend to do, or the, just a very small minority of people do this spontaneously. So when we think about barriers to this, I think a few things. So one I think it's just hard to take the moral perspective of someone else. You know, somebody with different moral values than yourself. It's just very challenging to think through those values, to think from that new moral perspective that's not your own. Uh, and Matt Feinberg and I, we had this experience when we were we were constructing these morally reframed arguments, especially when we had to make ones. I mean, I'll just tip, tip you off. We're, we're both political liberals. And when we had to make arguments for conservative political positions in terms of our values, or when we went the other way, when we had to make arguments for liberal positions in terms of conservative values, it was very disorienting. It was very challenging because in a lot of ways, it's really our first experience taking the moral worldview of their, people with very different values from our own. And I say this despite the fact that Matt grew up in Nevada. I grew up in Kansas and South Carolina. You know, we've been in political debates with conservatives, but this was probably really the first time we had sat down and really carefully considered the perspective of somebody with a really different moral, uh, you know, set of moral beliefs than our own. And that's, that's kind of sad, you know, that we hadn't before. So, okay. So one is, I think it's just, it's also great. I mean, you're, 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 you're a scientist. (laughs) <laughs> you know, like, yeah, like you, you have your degrees, you're studying it, and even th- this is hard even for you. So that really says something about that. All right, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, it's, no, it's a totally sad insight on humanity that we, like two moral political psychologists, had never really done this, you know. So, so in any event, yeah, it is very telling. Uh, so that's one thing. There's this kind of cognitive block. It's very hard to do. And then two, I think there's also a motivational block because when you 
go to make a morally reframed argument, you really have to ask yourself, do I want to be totally through and through true to my principles or do I want to be persuasive? Like, do I want to stick to not just the position that I hold, but the reason I have for it? Or do I want to win? You know, like, do I, you know, am I willing to do what it takes to make a persuasive argument? And that means that you may have to make an argument in terms of a moral value that you don't really endorse yourself. And, and reasonable minds can disagree on what the right answer to that question is, because people might feel that they just don't want to make an argument that seriously engages the value of religious purity, because it goes against their values to even do that. And people might feel that they don't even want someone to just agree with them on the issue, but for different moral reasons, that they want the person to agree with them for what they consider to be the right reasons. And so, and I think that this second thing, the motivational block that some people face with moral reframing relates to a larger dilemma in political behavior, which is uh, those things that motivate people are often the exact opposite of what makes them effective and successful politically. So it's emotion and outrage and visceral responses to immorality that get you fired up about an issue. Uh, but it's, uh, I think it's cold, calculated reasoning and strategy that are going to help you win. And this is a dilemma, this, this, this is a dilemma that social dilemmas, or excuse me, this is a dilemma that social movements face. You know, how do you get people to not just show up for a rally, to set aside their self-interest, to contribute to this cause, but then also conduct themselves intelligently and persuasively at that rally. And it's, it's the same dynamic that we found in political persuasion. How do you get people not only to want others to agree with them, uh, but also set, set aside their own very fiery feelings about this issue to soberly consider another person's perspective and make an effective argument. Right. And that, that, that hot and cold of moral persuasion is it's very challenging to navigate for anyone. Ah, this is so cool. Um, well, I could talk about that forever, but obviously we can only can do so much for one episode. So let me uh, give you the opportunity to tell people um, how they can keep up with you, how they can learn more about what you're up to, and then sort of let us know what you will be up to in the future. Sure, absolutely. Uh, you can keep up with my research at my, my website, uh, robwiller.org. We're trying to do new research on politics and morality all the time. Uh, we have I uh, gotten extremely interested in issues related to race and ethnicity in America, and we have a few projects that we hope to be, uh, you know, coming out pretty soon on, on those issues. And you can follow me also on Twitter at GhostFaceWiller. <laughs> um, that's that's my, my strange Twitter handle. And, um, uh, yeah, yeah, so in, in I, I guess that's all I had to say. That's not, <laughs> that's not a very artful sign-off. Obviously, new to the uh, podcast. <laughs> well, well, this is the best stuff in the world, um, and I find that uh, I'm meeting more and more scientists who are. I mean, you're just you're so be you're so on the bleeding edge of this research that um, it's just exciting. You're 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 the first people on Mars when it comes to this kind of uh, exploration. So, um, I really look forward to seeing what you have in the future. And I really thank you for coming on the show. Ah, it's incredibly generous, and I should say that any any glimmers of inspiration in this work are entirely attributable to my co-author, Matt Feinberg, who's uh, a fantastic social psychologist. Now, what starts with the letter C? Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. Uh, ah, who cares about other things? C is for cookie.
That's good enough for me. On each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or a reader by email. Send those to david at youarenotsosmart.com. And if we pick your cookie recipe and Mandy cooks it and then I eat it, we'll send you a signed copy of You Are Now Less Dumb. The book. Yes, there's a book about all the stuff that we talk about in the show. You Are Now Less Dumb. We'll send you that book in this episode. The recipe comes from Patrick Friel, who sent this four, four years ago, Patrick. Oh, boy. Yes, we have a lot of cookies to go through. But don't worry. We just sort of pick them at random sometimes. We also pick them based on what the show is about. This cookie recipe, he says, David, we enjoy your podcast. Here's my entry. I, I made these to leave out for Santa when our son was young. Oh, boy. Patrick sent this. Actually, it says at the bottom, this is from Peggy Friel. So this comes from the entire family. So Patrick and Peggy. Oh boy, they're called chocolate chip toffee bars, flour, brown sugar, walnuts, chocolate chips, egg, condensed milk, toffee bits. So, so cool because it makes a big pan and you have to chop up everything and you have to cut them up into little pieces, kind of like a brownie. So what is this going to be like? I don't know. Let's try it. Here it is. Oh, Patrick and Peggy. I have it in front of me. It's uh, it's going to be a big mess, but here we go. Mm. Mm. Patrick mm. and Peggy, this is amazing. Oh, you know, this, this experience feels so borderless. Like, uh, you know, in the pan, you have to actually cut these out of the pan to make them into what you can make them as big or as small as you want. You can cut tiny slivers out like brownies and the experience feels borderless. Like, uh, you know, there's no, uh, the, what the river has no beginning, no end. There's uh, there are no, uh, there are no edges to this experience. Uh, it, it doesn't feel contained. You can't categorize this. There's no cookie, um, module. There's, it's just, it's just one continuous flow state of cookiedom. It's, um, it's a Mobius strip covered in toffee and walnut and mushy and gooey and, and messy. Mm. That's too much. This is too much. Santa has to have the rest of this. I feel like I don't have enough taste buds to appreciate this. It's, it's, this is outside the realm of my, uh, cookie expertise. Um, it's like going into a black hole where the whole universe wraps around you. You can see like 180 degrees. It's, it's, it's like that, but a cookie. Mm. Patrick and Peggy, it's the best. A book is on its way. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Head to iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud and youarenotsosmart.com to get all the previous episodes. Go to patreon.com slash youarenotsosmart to support the show. Go to boingboing.com slash podcasts for more great podcasts like this one. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. The interstitial music is usually by Drew Garraway. And you can find us on Twitter at NotSmartBlog. I'm at David McCraney on Facebook, just slash you are not so smart. Next episode, a scientist asks the question, do we see reality as it really is? And comes up with the answer. Oh, it's going to be so cool. You're going to love it. For show notes and everything else, go to youarenotsosmart.com. Mm. 
see if I can find more of these cookies. If you're hearing this ad and you're trying to decide what podcast to listen to next, I've got one. I've got just the one. It's called Secrets, Crimes, and Audio Tape. It's an audio drama told week after week. If you subscribe to this, you'll get stories about crime, love, mystery, or conspiracy with actors you know and love. Some are dramas, some are comedies. And the latest episode is a thriller called Severed Threads. It's about faith, greed, and revenge. Make sure you don't miss a single episode by subscribing to Secrets, Crimes, and Audio Tape on iTunes, Stitcher, Wondery.com, that's W-O-N-D-E-R-Y.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Come on, subscribe to this, and I know you'll love it because it's like your favorite TV drama or comedy, but it only uses sound and your imagination. So go to this URL. It's smarturl.it slash S-C-A. That'll get you right there. SmartURL.it slash SCA Secrets, Crimes, and Audio Tape. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.